Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room for what is going to be such a dynamic and queer aesthetic filled interview with Dr. Dustin Friedman. But first, before we get into the interview, I'm actually really excited to present Listener's Corner. So imagine that the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you enter the tower and now you enter into a really cozy cafe. And in the cafe, there's a whole section dedicated to those who are listening to the podcast. One day, maybe that will be a reality. Um, we shall see. Um, also, there's so many exciting updates that we're going to be releasing on our social media. So if you're not, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. We do have an in-person event coming up in February. I can't release any more. Sorry, not yet, because it involves another collaborative partner. But soon, hopefully December, we'll give you the update of where the in-person event is. Okay, so we're in Listener's Corner. And I want to encourage all of you to virtually be part of our listener's corner. You can be in the cafe with a cup of coffee, leaving us a voicemail. And one such listener did that. Someone who I am deeply grateful and indebted to, Dr. Jan Balakian, who was my undergraduate mentor at Kane University. Shout out to Kane University in Union, New Jersey. And she still is my mentor and all things academic consultants. So hi, Jan, thanks for listening. And she sent us a really nice voicemail. So I want you to hear right now her thoughts about Gail Crowther's discussion on Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton. So here's Jan. The Sexton Plath biographer is absolutely fantastic. I've learned so much. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jan, for that voicemail. We are so happy that you enjoyed our interview with Gail Crowther. And you set the model for all of you out there to leave us a voice message, just like Jan did. And we will feature it in our listeners' corner. And I really can't wait to hear from all of you out there. So the easiest way to leave us a voice message is just go to our Anchor website. And if you don't know how to do that, just go to anchor.fm and then search for Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And there will be a section that says message with a plus sign in front of it. Click that and you will have an allotted time I think it's 30 seconds that you have up until to leave us a message. And you can re-record as much as you want. Maybe you want a really seamless message, or maybe you want to really show us your authenticity. So however you want to leave us a message, I'll leave it in your hands. And while you're at it, remember you can help support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, our public humanities mission here. And we are all volunteers who are in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So we really appreciate any type of support you give us. Maybe it's a monthly donation. Maybe it's a one-time donation. Any way you financially support us, we really appreciate it. And you'll get a shout out. So make sure that you leave your name so we can shout you out. Okay, 
So on today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dustin Friedman, and the episode is aptly titled with a nice Oscar Wilde pun, Getting Wild. Get it? W-I-L-D-E. Very clever. About gayness in Victorian literature. So you'll hear why Dr. Dustin Friedman talks about gayness and what does that mean when applied to Victorian literature. And to leave you all on the edge of your seats, here's a little teaser of what's to come. And right after our teaser, I am premiering our new theme song, Sagittarius, which is, again, composed by Anne-Sophie Anderson, my composer friend, um, and just such an excellent musician. So thank you, Sophie, for letting us use Sagittarius for our new um, theme song. And I think it really fits well with the gothic and queer theme that is present throughout my discussion with Dr. Friedman. Okay, so here's the teaser, and then you're going to be introduced to Sagittarius. I hope you all enjoy the episode. Um, my high school experience was, I think, maybe unique compared to other, other people, because I actually didn't encounter a lot of Victorian literature in high school. And I've since learned, you know, from, from teaching that many of my students are familiar with, you know, um, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or Great Expectations or one of like, you know, the, the sort of um, canonical Victorian texts. My high school experience was actually very focused on American literature. Okay. Um, and in fact, many of my teachers um, who, let me say they were fabulous teachers. Um, but they were, um, to, to, to put a point, they were, they were kind of straight dudes who were very dismissive of Victorian literature hmm. and would often say things about it that were sort of like, oh, it's boring. Oh, Jane Austen is boring. Um, and give us things like Hemingway um, or like war, war literature, war writing. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I am joined here with really exciting, dynamic guests who I've seen him all over social media. We've been interacting. First time I actually get to see his face and talk with him. Uh, so hi to Dr. Dustin Friedman. Um, welcome. Hello. Thank uh, you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, yes. And as all of you out there know, I am a Victorian enthusiast, and I don't always interview everyone in my field. Um, and I do 19th century American and British, so right, that nice transatlantic research. So 
Um, is it okay if I call you Dustin throughout the rest of the interview? Please, that's please okay. Do. Okay. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to give you, I want to give you your, you know, doctorate title. You deserved it. Uh, I understand. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you, but, but no, please. Dustin. Yeah. It it's takes great. a while, you know, to, uh, get the degree. Um, so, you know, let's just start from the beginning. And when I had sent Dustin, some of these guided questions, I um, like to be really punny. So that was my sound of music. <laughs> Just do <don't laughs> me moment. But, you know, because I am wearing my Oscar Wilde, born to be wild, punny shirt. And I know you're all things Victorian with what you write about. I'm, I mean, I know you teach outside of that. And I'm sure we'll get into it. Uh, your other passionate literary interests. Um, how did you first fall in love with Victorian literature? Yeah, I can I can definitely tell tell you about that. Um, so I applied to graduate school actually to be a modernist, but my senior year, after I put in my application for graduate school, I took an upper level class in the Victorian novel, and I was totally enthralled. And even though I, I, I love that class um, and uh, taught by Audrey Jaffe, who's now at the University of Toronto, um, I, I love that class. I came to graduate school thinking that I would still be a modernist. Mm. Um, but then what changed was that I took uh, a seminar with uh, Joseph Bristow, ah, who eventually became okay. my advisor on aestheticism and decadence. And I remember coming in the day after we had read Walter Pater mm. and sitting there and telling everybody, oh my God, isn't this the best thing ever? Didn't you just love it? And people were sort of like, oh, it's, it's, it was good. I was like, no, this is the best thing I've ever read. And then it clicked, okay, I need to study, I need to study the late Victorians. Um, and the rest is history. Yeah. So. I mean, we'll have to touch upon Joseph Bristow because I was enamored with his queer Victorian scholarship. Actually, that's how I first really knew that there was this intersection between queer studies and Victorianism. Mm -hmm. um, but even going back before your grad experience, which where did you do your um, graduate work, Dustin? Uh, I did my graduate work at UCLA. Oh, okay. So... Yeah. How about when you were, say, even in high school, did you gravitate towards Victorian novels? Like, did you, do you remember your experience with Victorian literature? Yes, and actually um, my high school experience was, I think maybe unique compared to other, other people. Cause I actually didn't encounter a lot of Victorian literature in high school. And I've since learned, you know, from, from teaching that many of my students are familiar with, you know, um, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or Great Expectations or one of like, you know, the, the sort of um, canonical Victorian texts. My high school experience was actually very focused on American literature. Okay. Um, and in fact, many of my teachers um, who, let me say they were fabulous teachers. Um, but they were, um, to, to, to put a point, they were, they were kind of straight dudes who were very dismissive of Victorian literature 
Hmm. And we'd often say things about it that were sort of like, oh, it's boring. Oh, Jane Austen is boring. Um, and give us things like Hemingway um, or like war, war literature, war writing, which is also great and, and fabulous. Um, but I didn't really know a lot about it until I got to college. Yeah, and that's my and least that's favorite writer is Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Everyone knows that. I am, I like The Hills, uh, what is it? Um, the oh, Hills, uh, Hills Like, like elephants. elephants? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I like that story and I like The Old Man in the Sea, but I'm not turning to mm -hmm. Ernest Hemingway for my pleasure reading. Um, but <laughs> I, and I, I, get, I, I get that, I get yeah. that. Uh, I think Hemingway can teach beautifully. Yeah, um, the but, symbolism but is good. I, I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, wonderful for close reading and sort of showing like, oh, this very simple sentence actually has, you know, um, contains multitudes. Um, but I, I would agree with you that it's, it's not what I go to for, for my pleasure reading. I like my prose a little bit more purple. Yeah, I love if that. I'm honest. I like that. That's a good metaphor. Um, so, well, where did you... Um, grow up like we can even just do the Dustin quick bio so you know sure where you know where was your high school experience oh, okay well um as as uh, a, a, a child up until um the sixth grade I lived in suburban Los Angeles okay um but I really consider my hometown to be a place called Arroyo Grande California which is um I don't know how up you are in your California geography. I'm good at SoCal. Um, so this is good. Okay. I, I know SoCal okay. really well. Okay. So yeah. Arroyo Grande is in South San Luis Obispo County. Um, so it's near the ocean. Uh, it is about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Okay. On the coast. And um, it, it's very close to the city of San Luis Obispo. Uh, which a lot of people know is because Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is a, a big school there. Um, but it's very, um, I guess you would classify it as as rural or semi-rural. Um, yeah, it was, it's um, not, not at all a bustling metropolis. Mm. Um, the nearest big city uh, was Santa Barbara. And I grew up there from the age of, uh, I guess, 11 um, until 17. And then I actually left high school a year early to start college. Oh, okay. And so where was your um, undergrad experience? Okay. Uh, when I left uh, high school early, I started college at first at USC because they had a special program called the Resident Honors Program, which doesn't exist anymore, um, specifically for students who wanted to start uh, college a year, a year early. Oh, wow. um, and then after that first year, I actually transferred to UC Berkeley, and that's where I, I, I did most of my, my bachelor's degree. Okay, so you are a California, um, you know, all things Californian, when it comes to True, knowing all of the areas. Um, yeah, True, see like- ages zero to 30 yes. in California. Okay, yeah, because I think you're Zooming from the DC area, is that true right now? That's right, I live in Washington DC right now. Okay. Um, and there was a hiatus uh, in between for about three years in Singapore. Oh, wow, okay. 
Okay. Oh, it's yeah. good. You've laid it all out. Um, yeah, yes. no, my SoCal experience is more um, all things Orange County because that's where our family friends live. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm like very- Disneyland. Yeah, I know you're Valinda and, um, you know, the San Diego area. Yeah, I know Long Beach. <laughs> Yeah. So well, I'm like always the on the outside. Born in. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So you know, you know. Yeah. But well, and UCLA, right? Isn't that, is the Huntington Library at UCLA? The Huntington Library is not at UCLA. It's in Pasadena. Okay. Uh, which is another, another part of Southern California, but there are a lot of really strong ties there. Okay. Um, UCLA does uh, does own the William Andrews Clark Library, which has all the Oscar Wilde papers. Yes, and that's why so, yeah. I know UCLA very well, because I was looking up yeah. where to find different um, wild manuscripts about ancient Greek literature, since that's what I'm writing right now in my dissertation is about wild and ancient Greek homoerotic poetics. But the other half of it is a Whitman journey right. with Whitman and Wilde. Right, so the nice transatlantic meeting, but yeah, I was just, I'm very curious because it's interesting since, you know, when I remember Victorian literature, I do remember it from high school. Like I remember Withering Heights, like you said, that's read a lot. I even remember Christina Rossetti when I read that in 12th grade. Mm. Um, and yeah, for me, when I read Goblin Market, like you were Walter Pater, I mm. will always remember Goblin Market as being my way into Victorian literature and poetry. Yeah. Goblin Market is one of the best and most fun and easiest poems to teach. Mm. Because like basically you can go into class and be like, um, what's the deal with the goblins? Yeah. What's the deal with the juice? Mm-hmm what are the fruits and then that can just go for like the full hour the full hour two hours yeah that's that's such a such a rich wonderful strange poem yeah and you're totally see getting to victorian literature yeah and you teach yeah. at american university right i teach at american university here in dc that's right okay yeah had a lot of friends who went there uh, so oh, representing awesome. american university it's a big south jersey draw because i grew up in yeah. south jersey we have a lot of students from from Jersey, Connecticut, New York, that that whole kind of um, tri-state area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so do you get to teach Victorian literature a lot or are there other like do you branch out and do intro courses like what's your makeup like when you're teaching? Yeah, something that's really cool about um, my department at American is that basically all of the faculty teach both in the general education program or what's now known as the core program and in the major. Um, so I get to teach as, as part of the, of the undergraduate uh, core or general ed, um, a Victorian literature, culture, power oh. class. That's the title of it. And it's basically a Victorian survey and I teach that um, at least once a year and more recently every semester. Um, and I also teach uh, upper level uh, Victorian courses in the major, uh, but I also do branch out into uh, more thematically organized courses um, 
in both in, in the gen ed program and beyond the gen ed uh, core program. Um, I've taught a lot of queer literature, uh, history of queer literature, contemporary queer literature. Uh, I taught a class in the Buildings Roman, which uh, went from the from Jane Austen to the present. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's great. We really kind of get to stretch our pedagogical and literary muscles here at American, which I've yeah. really enjoyed. Oh, great. No, that's, it's exciting to hear because I think, right, even when I explain that I do 19th century literature, I still, I teach film sometimes. I've taught drama. Uh, next semester, I'm teaching a Broadway musical course and literary adaptations of the musical. But right, we can, we have a lot of different passions. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And do you ever teach Victorian texts and their contemporary counterparts? I've not yet done the sort of like, sort of like the 19th century text and like the, one of the modern retellings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. uh, I haven't done that yet. I, I think it would be great to teach like a Victorian and Neo Victorian course someday. Um, something that I have done uh, is there's one upper level course that I teach called Queer Victorians, which is almost all 19th century texts, but we end with Tipping the Velvet by Sarah mm -hmm. Waters. Okay. Which is uh, a, uh, a lesbian text, which was written in the 1990s, but is set in the Victorian period. And teaching that to students after we spend a semester looking at actual Victorian texts um, is always so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like want to do in the future. It's like if you taught Possession by A.S. Byatt in a way. Yeah. Um, which I just actually started read reading for the first time, so I'm like. But I need to read oh, that's Sarah it's Waters. So good. It's so good. Yeah, but everyone keeps yeah. telling me to read Sarah Waters. So now that you've said it, Dustin, I have to add it to my list. Um, if you are at all interested in like Victorian sensation fiction mm -hmm. uh, or just general like gayness, you're going to love Sarah Waters. Yeah, it's yeah. So well, good. I'm so all things gayness. Like, yeah. That's not awesome. a secret. Um, <laughs> did, well, speaking of like queer film representation, since we're on the topic, I have had my students watch The Dorian Gray from 2009. I think it's 2009. Have you seen that version? I admit embarrassingly, I have not seen that version. That's the one with Colin Firth? Yes. And, no. Yes. Well, yes, yeah. Colin Firth I've seen and I've... Barnes. Something Barnes is plays Dorian. Oh, is the guy, he was also in uh, Downton Abbey, right? He was Pamuk? Maybe. <laughs> but maybe I don't know. I've seen the trailer, but I've never seen the film. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I actually really liked it because there's a lot of um, um, homoerotic uh, moments, but also um, the way that Hollywood, right? Whenever Hollywood takes a very homoerotic text, it tends to try to create the female lover storyline that there's like this male female lover storyline that you know in the novel there is um you know dorian's love interest but dorian's not that infatuated with her and i don't want to spoil dorian gray too much but the actress who's failing at acting and she has an untimely end um yeah 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 that's how um i teach dorian gray in my uh, Victorian uh, gen ed survey class. And how I teach it 
is one of the themes that we pursue throughout the classes is, is the marriage plot. Um, and especially oh. the notion of um, the marriage plot as kind of a disciplinary structure. And I'm getting that from, from uh, Carolyn Dever, uh, whose work I assigned in the class, but um, uh, most notably. But um, uh, the idea that uh, one of the purposes of the marriage plot was to sort of discipline readers' sexuality into uh, a sort of re normative reproductive heterosexuality mm -hmm. and how much wild in the civil vein plot is sort of dangling this kind of notion of the marriage plot or kind of this like this kind of um, vestigial marriage plot and then dropping it really quickly um, to be sort of like, this is not, this is not me. That's not this kind of novel, guys. Um, that's part of kind of its um, subversiveness. Yeah, well, um, and I mean, I even remember when they tried to do Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, I love the musical version, I have to admit, but when, you know, they create female characters and it is really interesting that whenever there is this really queer male dynamic, mm -hmm. um, that there is always a heteronormative, right? Uh, male, female um, pressure to create that marriage plot, like you're saying, mm -hmm. Dustin. Um, and I sometimes wonder why is there no Jekyll and Hyde with just, you know, just figuring out his sexuality or the queerness. Yeah. yeah, and I mean that's something to that that uh, we talk about when we when we teach Jekyll and Hyde, or at least something that I bring up is that it's very notably a novel without women, essentially, mm -hmm. right? There's the there's right there's the maid who sees um, uh, uh, the Danvers Carew incident. Right, but other than that, it's very like dude text, um, right? In in a way which I think opens up all of these kind of homoerotic possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, have you seen like the the earlier version of Dorian Gray? Um, I can't remember the it's the one with Angela Lansbury. Yes, I have that one. I think is, that's much more queer in my opinion than the two thousand and eight ish nine ish one. Oh yeah, no, I would agree with you with that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like the it's, touching. It's a weird men. movie. Oh, yeah. But that's the same way when I teach Dracula. Um, well, I've, I've taught Dracula for a um, literary analysis course. And I'll end with Dracula. And then we do all the different literary approaches, right? Psychological, yeah. queer, feminist, um, race study. Um, and I really do like the 90s Dracula. Um, but at the same time, again, we, it's that same dynamic. Right, I love it. We've kind of we're doing this really interesting analysis right now of homoeroticism in Hollywood, but um, it makes sense since both of us are in conversation. But yeah, right. the early Draculas, right. I think. Um, oh my, the most famous, Bella Lugosi. There we go. Um, yeah, I was trying to think of the actor. That one is very queer because it ends with him trying to bite Jonathan. Where, right, which is never depicted. In the, yeah. in the novel, right? It's mm -hmm. never directly depicted famously. Famously, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love that um, moment about he's mine in the novel when, yeah. um, right, Dracula's speaking to the vampire sisters. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I love, see, this is where I fell for Victorianism because sexology, and this is where you, right, enter in Dustin's really, I will call it queer seminal work because I think it is a queer seminal work. Um, it will be, it is, it's good. Well, thank you. That's very coming. kind. That's incredibly kind of you to say. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, 
I had a lot of fun writing it. Mostly, I mostly had fun writing it. I'll, 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 I'll alter that a little bit. Uh, but I, I, if it's helpful for anybody, that is kind of the highest thing that you can hope for uh, in your work is that it enables other people's thoughts. So if you're finding it helpful, um, I'm totally flattered and honored. Yeah, well, you are my more. interlocutor in my framework for approaching queerness before sexology. Because I actually yeah. end with sexology when um, John Addington Simmons, so for those out there, John Addington Simmons, right? I guess we could do a quick refresher so everyone knows what we're talking about. But um, Edward Carpenter, John Addington Simmons, Havelock Ellis, there might be another, but the trifecta I'd call them of Victorian sexology, which yeah. creating this term homosexuality, also who fits in it, who doesn't, right? And that's something mm -hmm. you're really invested in. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I'm always curious about why is there such an intellectual, um, um, how should I put it? Like an elite intellectualism embedded in sexology that John Addington Simmons claiming himself as homosexual exists outside of say working class queer men. And there's actually almost this social class distinction that starts to happen between the men. Right. And I mean, for, for Simmons, at least, um, and what, I, what I'm saying here, this is not some idea that I've come up with. Um, hmm. Let me let me say that first. This is from like critical reading. But um, what, I, what I found really interesting about Simmons is how what seems to replace sexual difference is class difference, right? So instead of like, instead of the sex, the, the sexual desire being like man, woman, it becomes upper class, lower class, right? Mm. Um, but that difference, Simmons is still very much invested in thinking about sexual desire as being about difference, right? Desire is someone different from you rather than sameness, right? Which the homo and homosexuality would, would otherwise imply. Right. So there's still, and he kind of gets off on like that paradigmatic, right? Like in his autobiography, there's that his gondolier that he's really into in Venice. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, so it's, it's very, um, yeah, it can be very fetishistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say it's yeah. like E.M. Farster and E.M. Farster's lovers who were men of color, also lower yeah. working class, uh, Whitman, which, is why I turn to John Addington Simmons because he writes a case study of Whitman and that's what Whitman really is objecting to at the end of his life. Like, I do think, right, I'm arguing against scholars, Whitman scholars who say that Whitman objects against homosexual content in his writing and rebuffs Simmons because he doesn't rebuff Simmons. He has a 10 year writing relationship with Simmons. It's not like a random person, right? It's a friendship that they've cultivated and he, I think, this is my reading, I think Whitman doesn't want to be pigeonholed into having this kind of case study thrown on his poetry. I, I'm not a Whitman scholar, so I can't speak to it from that angle. But the reason why what you say sounds convincing to me is that Wilde felt the same way. Mm. Is that um, he, I, I quoted in my book, I won't be able to get it directly, but he sort of, after he's released from jail, he laments like, oh, I'm gonna be a case study for German scientists, like mm -hmm. alas, right? Like he doesn't want, yeah, it, it, he doesn't wanna be a case study. It's not that he's ashamed of his desire. 
it's like, yeah, it's precisely what you're saying, right? He doesn't want to be um, made into an object, fetishized object of scientific scrutiny, which makes sense. Who does, right? Yeah, it's true. Well, and Whitman has a lot of friendships with, you know, I would also go fully to say sexualized fantasies, maybe physical relationships with continually working class men. So there is this, Mm -hmm. and that is a power dynamic. And I actually trace it to, you know, the symposium, Um, but trace it to just this pederastia idea, but also like, why is this in, and it's uncomfortable, right? The unequal power Mm -hmm. dynamic. Like I, that's why I try to explain to people, I'm not Right, and I don't think you're in the business of doing this, Dustin, after reading your work. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we're not promulgating this as let's all go and uh, embrace what Simmons or what even Whitman or Wilde were trying to represent. Like, we're not trying to mm-hmm. create this utopic island um, that, you know, has a lot of inequalities. Yeah, I mean, I think something that, that queer theory can really teach us is that um, our desires are frequently not a good model for politics. Hmm. Um, right? That, that, that we shouldn't always necess- that, that our, our desires are not u- utopian. Um, and we can admit that uh, and, and say that like our, our, our politics and distinguish our politics from um, Sort of like the, like the the I guess what we might call like the content of our desire or or, or kind of the um, the power dynamics of our desire, right? Um, because desire is always fraught with these, almost always a, a, a fraught with like these complex power negotiations. Um, I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that is not really like a model for democracy, you know, Edward Carpenter notwithstanding. Um, yeah, and democracy. I mean, this is just something I've been reading a lot and researching and starting to write, especially after I did um, the pedagogy article about why read against Whitman's democracy or like what, why bring in queer people of color who question Mm -hmm. and challenge like Langston Hughes or James Baldwin, uh, Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison, you know, bell hooks um, that who does democracy function or work for Mm -hmm. in that specific time and place? And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know there's definitely a ghost in the room with us right now who I know I've had to think fully about Foucault and think about Mm -hmm. if I'm going to engage with him or not. I mean, I've determined that I'm not engaging with him just because um, as my one committee, my queer theory committee of, member said, do you want to do a Foucault reading of Whitman? And I said, no. And then she said, okay, you don't have to do that then. But right, Foucault is always, I'm sure it'll happen in a footnote eventually when I write, but you do engage with Foucault at the beginning. And this might be controversial, Dustin, but Mm. do you turn, would you say that you turn against Foucault's framing of sexual identity? I would say, I don't know if it's so much a turning away as it is trying to account for the fact that the story that Foucault tells is not the whole story of, of sexuality in the 19th century. And he, I would even venture to guess in the 18th century as well. 
um, because, right, he does give such pride of place to sexology and uh, a certain kind of, of sexology uh, and a certain kind of knowledge production. Um, and I, I mean, I think all that I, all I'm saying in, 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 in before queer theory is that uh, the aesthetic was also part of the story in a way that, that Foucault's framework, at least in the history of sexuality, doesn't really um, account for, right? Um, I think it is notable, though, that Foucault, late in his career, does have this turn to the aesthetic, right? And that's who, or that's what I turn to, as, as you've read, um, in the book, uh, to, to think about um, how we can think about uh, sexuality and sexual self-knowledge as an aesthetic phenomenon, uh, rather than in this like sort of strictly disciplinary framework. So I, I think that it's not even so much turning away from Foucault, but turning away from this uh, particularly kind of narrow way in which Foucault has been received. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the whole um, oft-quoted, um, the homosexual is now a species, right? Like that to me is, or... Um, is it homosexuality is now a species, but you know what I'm- It was, uh, yeah, it was like, um, it's something like that. Something right? like that. I used that. to be able to quote it from memory. I can't anymore. Yeah. Uh, but Yeah, right. And we know that he's doing that kind of a bit polemically, right? Mm -hmm. He's trying to, to make a point. Uh, and he doesn't mean to be taken literally, uh, or not completely literally at least. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, we, we know that like that, that it's a much more nuanced story than that. Yeah, and that's where I wanted to ask because your um, subtitle, right, is Victorian Aestheticism in the Self. Um, so, like, can you explain to those who might not know a lot about what um, queer, a queer aesthetic is or who even a queer aesthete, since that's such a specific category? Like, how would you explain queer aestheticism, Dustin? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say that queer aestheticism um, in its broadest sense, and right now I'm going to bracket off the question of history because I'm, I'm focused on a very specific group of aesthetes at a particular time and place. Um, but I, I, I would generalize my insights into thinking about queer aestheticism is about how we... Uh, as 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 queer people um, use art and aesthetic experience, maybe use is the wrong word, but how our encounters with with art and our aesthetic experiences 
helps us to develop a sense of viable queer selfhood. Okay. So basically, right, you make this claim and it's, um, I think, just for my own reading, I was so intrigued and I think it's really evocative, which is that, right, take it out of even Victorian literature, but any art that one consumes, especially someone who is LGBTQIA, um, that they're trying to find their identity somehow through art. So you even have this claim about reaffirming your identity through the consumption of art. Um, and I think that that's such a strong statement because why is art so powerful? Right. And I think a lot of times um, there's a lot of skepticism and I think maybe valid skepticism of this notion of identification or relatability hmm. in art. Cause there's the whole kind of argument that like when you read to find yourself that results in you not being attentive enough to difference, right? Or projecting yourself onto the text. And I get that. But the phenomenon that I'm describing, I feel is different because it's almost kind of reversed hmm. where instead of you looking for yourself in the text, you find a notion of coherence that's articulated within the text itself that you can then kind of sort of internalize in order to understand yourself, right? So it's not like from self outward, but from text inward. If that okay, yeah, sense. yeah. Can we do an example yeah. just to like make it? So you start your book with Dorian Gray um, yeah. and how Dorian has, I mean, is it too drastic to say this is the moment where he has a psychological transformation? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah, so the moment that I start with in the book is with Dorian sitting uh, to have his, his the, the eponymous um, portrait picture painted by, by Basil Halvard. And so Basil is in love with Dorian, but he can't say it for homophobia reasons. Um, but while uh, Dorian is sitting there, uh, Lord Henry, who's one of Basil's friends and is, you know, this very kind of like witty, um, uh, uh, as the quasi Walter Pater mm -hmm. character is, um, but funnier than Pater was, if I'm being honest, um, is is sitting there and he's talking with Dorian to amuse Dorian while he's sitting there getting his his, his portrait painted, and at a certain point, um, Lord Henry says to Dorian, and I'm just paraphrasing here, um, oh. Um, those desires that you've always had uh, since your boyhood that you were always ashamed of, what if you just embraced them? Mm. And then Dorian has this moment where he's like, um, you know, there, there have been these feelings inside of me. And I've never been fully cognizant of them. Um, and now I am. And in fact, now that I've internalized that, now that I realize this, the whole world looks different to me, and I have a very different way of relating both to myself and to to the external world. Mm. Now, that moment has often been interpreted as um, sort of Lord Henry planting these kind of like um, 
evil seeds within within Dorian's brain. Yeah, poison. Um, poison that he's being yeah. poisoned. Mm-hmm. And what I'm suggesting is that what if it what if it's not that? Mm-hmm. What if what Lord Henry is saying is simply helping Dorian to um, give form to these desires that have always already been present within him, Mm. but just not in a um, cognizable Mm -hmm. way, right? So that in in, in a sense, Lord Henry's kind of beautiful aesthetic conversation um, is helping to give some sort of um, tangible, we might even say aesthetic Mm. form to Dorian's desire such that he can now sort of be be aware of it um and be kind of a queer person in, in the world yeah and what's so sad well my own reading and mm. it's this is why i have dustin with us because this is exactly what i borrow not borrow but credit with dustin's theorization about this reading of this moment and i mean there is though um Dorian isn't in a very comfortable place. Like he, right, he's trying to um, figure his desire out, figure who he loves. But Lord Henry and Vassal are not necessarily good agents or ethically moral, right? Like it could could have been a very productive moment where Dorian comes into himself, but um, you have some bad actors. In the novel. And of course, yeah, ultimately it's ultimately it's not, right? Ultimately it's not. And the reason why it's ultimately not is that I feel like while he's trying to process through some of his ambivalence towards uh, Walter Pater mm. and towards aestheticism, in a way which I think in the novel is ultimately not entirely coherent. Because hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, I, I find the book um, fascinating, but ultimately I, uh, ideologically coherent. Oh, sorry, yeah. ideologically incoherent. Oh, okay. Uh, in that, it, 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 incoherent in that sense. Um, but I do think that that moment that he is describing at the beginning of, of Dorian Gray is represented positively throughout the writings of many Victorian esthetes and even in Wild's own writings. Mm. Uh, like for me, uh, 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 Mr. W.H. is kind of the positive, the more kind of affirming version of that of that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where I can't wait for Dustin and all of you out there to eventually, this is the motivation I have to finish my dissertation just because, you know, Wilde writes this a few years after he, um, not actually a few years, um, maybe 10 years after he meets Whitman and um, I think from what I've researched, Wilde was actually getting a lot of his poetics from Whitman, from reading Leaves of Grass. And I mean, there is that whole, I'm more, I'm very interested in the yellow book and what the book, right? Some people think it's um, Husman's is Against Nature, which is the translation, as I'm not going to say the French right now, but, um, and Whatever the book is, though, I'm really interested in how the book kind of becomes this corrupting force. Like, to me, that book is more of what's corrupting than necessarily. And, and this is where 
you know, you come in, Dustin, when you have your reading of what Lord Henry is saying to Dorian, that it's not necessarily Lord Henry causing the poison or the corruption. I think it's more Dorian starting to just um, become overwhelmed with what's inside of himself or even trying to figure out his own sexuality or desires. Um, right. Yeah. It's sort of like after that moment, Dorian is kind of newly opened mm -hmm. to the world. Um, and, and that's kind of a, a very, uh, that could be a very dangerous sort of fraught moment where he could have either been led on on one path, uh, maybe a Whitman-esque path, I don't know. Um, but that's not the path that he's taken on ultimately by Lord Henry, right? Yeah. He's ultimately taken on this very different, yeah. um, more self-destructive path. And also not an openly homoerotic path. No, he right? could have been in a throuple. Uh, I don't know why it wasn't thruple. just Vassal and Lord Henry. I mean, I do think there's this triangulation. They could have all been together, but that just doesn't happen. That's what I tell my classes when I teach that moment, is that the problem, like what, what sets Gray and Gray on this bad path is that both Basil and Lord Henry are ultimately too bourgeois. Mm-hmm to just have sex with him. Like if they all had just had like a little coming together after that portrait was painted, I think all of their lives would have ended a lot differently. Yeah, well, and I think, right, they're, Lord Henry and Basil are kind of trying to replicate this um, student teacher, very Greek. I mean, I'm really interested when Dorian keeps getting called Narcissus all the time yeah. by Lord Henry. And that's where I go literally wild with my interpretation because, you know, Oscar Wilde loved mm -hmm. ancient Greek. Well, he was going mm -hmm. to become an ancient Greek scholar. Scholar, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There could have been so many ways that it might've worked out. But in the end, I think Dorian would still have been in the, um, on an unequal playing field just because no, of you, uh, yes. the identities. Yeah. No, I think I think I think you're you're right about that. That there's still that power dynamic at play, but again, it's one of those things where I feel like what Wilde is doing is he is kind of critiquing this this uh, kind of uh, embrace of of of, of pederastia by queer men who aren't willing to kind of take it all the way mm. into a physical relationship. Exactly. They're uh, very, they're scared, because, I think, Lord Henry and Basil. They're absolutely scared because they're, they, they know, they know what, what Greek, ancient Greek pederastia entails, and they're too afraid of risking, um, you know, their, 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 their social position, their acceptance in society um, by, by taking it that last step into a, a kind of physically erotic relationship mm. with Dorian. And that's ultimately the problem, I think. It's not Lord Henry's conversation with Dorian that awakens him to his identity, which is the problem. The problem is that it doesn't culminate in them just, you know, doing it. <laughs> it's actually, it's actually, I don't know um, if you've ever, um, like you'll do American and British texts in the same semester when you do, say, 19th century lit, but... I just finished teaching the House of Mirth, which I'm obsessed with. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. an Edith Wharton. I become, I become so <laughs> indebted to her. But again, she really loved Whitman. And I feel like I'm just starting to see this inheritance of Whitman and there's this queer aesthetic there, um, whether it be Wilde or Wharton or, um, you know, even Langston Hughes. Like there's just a lot mm-hmm. of these reverberations. And mm-hmm. the House of Mirth also has this very homoerotic narrative with Lily and um, uh, well, I think mostly scholars have kind of looked on Lily and um, Selden's cousin, Gertie Farish. Um, yeah. And like that Lily doesn't seem that interested romantically with the men she's trying to match with. And she feels so forced to have to find this marriage match to save her from her debt. But again, it's right. that kind of like, why isn't Lily able to act on her own desire? Like I find Dorian and Lily are actually really interesting. And I, not until now, I'm like, I have to teach, I should teach Dorian Gray and the House of Mirth back to back. would be an interesting coupling. Yeah, people who come to bad ends because they, it's, what's so interesting about both of those characters, I feel, it's like their tragedy is not that they are unaware of their desires. Their tragedy is that they become aware of their desires, but social forces are such that they can't act on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, right? and also- that, that, the, That's the problem, yeah. Yeah, and the unequal power dynamic, one of my students, it was very profound, yeah. was reading Lily as um, through a mental health, um, like her having a mental health breakdown, but even- mm-hmm. Um, like her abuse being unrecognized by Gus Trenner when he makes this advance towards her, blackmails her, basically says like, you need to sleep with me or else mm-hmm. I'm going to tell everyone about what happened and ruin you. But yeah, and it's right. I feel that way with Dorian too. There's a lot of this um, unresolved um, emotional conflict that he's in that there's not a chance for them to express their voices. But I think, right, Dustin, that's why these are such powerful narratives because as a reader, you're trying to, um, like you're giving agency to these characters by going through their journey. And um, you're right, but they meet tragic endings. They do. Uh, something else that, that uh, I was just thinking of when you were talking about unequal, unequal power dynamics, is also that both of those texts have these um, sort of stagey working class characters Mm -hmm. that are imperfectly integrated into the rest of the narrative. Because I'm thinking one, of course, of the moment um, where you get to see Sybil Vane's home life. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it's almost this kind of weird standalone chapter of, of Oscar Wilde trying to talk about working class people. Um, and then the James Vane plot, which as my friend Neil Holkren argues, uh, you know, doesn't go anywhere, right? It's this kind of abortive um, melodrama plot is what Neil argues. And same with House of Mirth, right? At the very, very end, right? She encounters that kind of working class family, right? Mm-hmm. And there's the woman who's like, oh, I used to read about you in the newspapers. Yes, yes, um, Nettie. And it's kind of, yeah, Nettie, right? And it's kind of this, um, it just kind of, it, it's so startling, right? Because none of the yeah. other characters 
are, are part of that social milieu, right? So it, it becomes this kind of, um, both novels kind of feel the need to nod to issues to, of social class, even though I feel in some ways both authors weren't fully equipped to create sort of convincing working class characters. Yeah, those imaginary worlds. You're right. And also, yeah, yeah. I would say the same that my students point out, and I agree, is how a wild and Wharton and a lot of the writers of that time, especially, you know, the writers who are um, Protestant um, or Christian, but specifically with the Wharton, um, just how Jewishness is in this very stand in like, and this is a Jewish character. And this is, I know one of my students objected a lot to the manager of the theater in Dorian Gray. And just like how all of these tropes of anti-Semitism come in. And I mean, for House of Mirth, Rosedale maybe is a little more nuanced. Um, I would say it's more nuanced than that manager. But again, it's, their Jewishness is this very drastic difference in the narrative. It's yeah, interesting that, that, that you say that because I've heard with, with Dorian Gray, at least, I've heard the argument that the kind of markedly anti-Semitic representation of the, of, the, of the stage manager is not wild, but it's the narrator perspective being focalized through hmm. um, Lord Henry. Um, so it's 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 the narrator in third person telling us um, kind of freely and directly Lord Henry's anti-Semitism. I don't buy that argument. I think that as much as I love Oscar Wilde, yeah. it's some standard issue 19th century anti-Semitism. Um, and I do think we also get that a bit with Wharton. Oh, yeah. Well, well yeah, and I mean, it, even though Wharton did support the Dreyfus affair, which you can all yeah. look and research it, it she... She was not in a social group of integrated religion. I mean, right. she was from a WASP background and also tended to stay in that kind of circle. Um, yeah, I mean, same, same with Wilde, right? Like Wilde loved Amy Levy. Um, yeah, and, who and, I like, taught. He, he, I love Amy Levy. I love Amy Levy too. So Wilde definitely knew and appreciated Jewish people and Jewish writers. But it's like this kind of like casual anti-Semitism that was just sort of, you know, in the air in the late yeah. 19th century. And uh, I mean, we have to acknowledge that, right? Yeah, well, that's why I think everyone should read. Um, uh, well, I always say Xantope, but um, I don't know how you pronounce Amy Levy's poem. I say Xantope. Yeah. But my students yeah. loved, and I agree, that dramatic monologue and... Amy Levy, such a nuanced psychological writer, um, who sadly Absolutely. had a, such a short, you know, writing life mm -hmm. and mental health um, pressures. Um, but yeah, she was the first Jewish woman to go to Cambridge. Um, right. And yeah, well, and you're right. There's this appreciation. It reminds me of Whitman um, and his love for Lem Emma Lazarus's poetry, but. Mm -hmm they weren't necessarily integrated into each other's lives. Right. Right. Precisely. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's an excellent way of putting it, is that it wasn't, there's this appreciation there, but there wasn't yet this sense of um, fully working through one's internalized uh, anti-Semitism 
uh, internalized racism. That, that, yeah. that oh, and wild gotten, on it, people yeah. of color. I mean, that could be a yeah. whole panel because he has yeah. some words about Whitman because Whitman associated with Black Americans in Camden. And mm -hmm. he said he can't believe that Whitman was even with Black Americans. Right. Like, so, right. and right. And Whitman also has his, you know, he has views that mm -hmm. are, um, you know, not fully seeing the autonomy of Black Americans too, like has racist statements. So it's, right. yeah. yeah. It's, but yeah, I think and, and, uh, the crit, yeah, the critic no, Michelle Mendelssohn is, is really good on Wild and Race. I was just gonna, gonna say, oh, Michelle Mendelssohn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Do you have yeah. a few extra minutes, Dustin? Uh, absolutely, I do. You do? Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. No, just because I do want to ask, we didn't touch upon Joseph Bristow, um, but like, who are some queer Victorian critics who, you know, and you do credit them in the preface, but like, just, you know, who are some in the background that you're, you know, want to say right now indebted to or you relied on for your inspiration? Mm -hmm. I would say that um, Joseph Bristow uh, is, and he was my he was my advisor, um, and and I count him as a, as a friend. So this is not um, so I have a personal investment there too. Um, but his work has always been so inspirational, um, and as a a mentor and as an advisor. Um, I couldn't have asked for for any better. Um, he takes so much time and care with all of his students um, that just just it's it was an amazing intellectual experience uh, to work with him as a person, and that I think really shines through in his scholarship as well, which has always been a touchstone for me. <coughs> Excuse me, um, and uh, I have to say my other. Touchstone, uh, although I, I never I never got to meet her sadly, and she's she's passed. Is of course um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, mm. um, who I, I find her 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 critical writing to be just um, this might sound hyperbolic, but to be just a, a miracle. Um, and there's just so much uh, kind of care and attentiveness and sensitivity which comes through even in, in kind of the texture of, of her prose. Um, that, I, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, I, 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 I went into college knowing that I loved literature and that I wanted to study it, but it's reading Cedric who made me want to become a literary critic. Um, just because I, her, her writing, when I encountered it in, at, at the university, uh, just opened up these new kind of vistas and horizons for me for what literary criticism could do. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I always remember where I was when I read Epistemology of the Closet as an undergrad and read her polemical, right, creatively playful and definitely yeah. historically factual, but that's what I loved about it when she said, and Shakespeare was gay and um, Michelangelo's gay and um, I don't know, Wilde's gay. And she just mentions this litany, these litany of writers and she does it as this provocative claim. But I loved that playfulness. Oh, so it is, it is. Yeah. And right. And it, Joseph Bristow, I hope I'm getting this right, wrote a feminine yeah. England, right? Yeah, he wrote a feminine okay. England. That's right. Good, good. Yeah, because I really relied on that text too when I first started. Yeah. 
uh, my grad career, but well, and is he still teaching? Oh, absolutely. He's, oh, he's okay. very, very, um, yeah, no, he's still uh, teaching. He's still very much uh, active in the classroom and, and as a publishing scholar. Yeah. 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 yeah well, no, he, um, yeah, I know he's, he seems like such a, such a, he's such a name, right? Um, but he, 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 he uh, established himself uh, very early. So um, yeah, he's still, still, still very active in, in all of those arenas, uh, yeah. fortunately. Um, yeah, just uh, to, just to return to Cedric, one more thing that I love about her is it's sort of, um, I feel like often in, in the scholarly realm, uh, there's this kind of, um, com maybe combativeness is too, is too um, harsh, but this idea that like you have to kind of like fight and like claim your space, right? Mm. And Cedric, I feel, is just a model for just the opposite of that in terms of like a, a critical kind of generosity and kindness of spirit, um, which I think is is wonderful and lovely and super queer. Yeah, and also when she gets into her memoir-like moments with that mm -hmm. um, book touching feeling, um, mm -hmm. that, like you're saying, there's such care she takes. Um, mm -hmm. But I know I really realized oh there's so many scholars who they actually do put themselves into their text and like that's something I've always wanted to emulate is like this is not just a machine behind the computer like we are thinking feeling emotional uh critics right and and there's a way to do that which is not narcissistic which is I feel what people sometimes are afraid of when they're afraid of putting themselves into their criticism. It's like, oh, is this going to read as narcissistic? And I think it's it's often not. I think Cedric is a great way of showing how you can be kind of personal and vulnerable in a way which is also illuminating of, of the text and of the reading. Yeah, well, okay. Well, as we end, I am deeply, deeply encouraging everyone listening to get your hands on Dustin Friedman's Before Queer Theory first, it is such a gripping title. Um, and I have to admit, that's not my title. Oh, my it's editor, not? Captain uh, Gold's. No, I was originally, uh, let me tell you, just really quickly. I'm yes, sorry. yes, say, um, yeah, explain it. Yeah, no, my uh, original title was um, Erotic Negativity, which uh, is a concept that I elaborate in the introduction. Yeah. And uh, after my book was, was accepted and everything, uh, my editor told me that the marketing department was a bit hesitant about how that title would read to people. Hmm. And I came up with some alternative titles, uh, which in retrospect, none of them were that great. Um, and then Catherine Goldstead uh, at Johns Hopkins University Press, my brilliant editor, she's so fabulous. Um, Catherine was like, how about before queer theory? And I hesitated at first, but I'm like, no, we can go with it. And now I'm so glad that I went with that title. Um, so, so thank yeah. you for saying that. But I do have to admit, it's not mine. I could have never come up with a title that good. Well, thank you for, you know, to your fabulous editor. Um, yeah. And yeah, and it really resonates. Like, it makes sense. And it's, mm -hmm. right? It's good branding, which, mm -hmm. you know, university presses, all presses, it doesn't matter if you're yes. a university press. People see a title and they want to know where are they, 
are they going to find themselves in it? Right. I know that's controversial, but it is true. People look at it. They do look at covers. Like right. <laughs> we know we don't want to judge it by its cover, but it is your first interaction. And I was gripped by the title. So congratulations, Thank you. Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but no, everyone, definitely. This is just such, like I said, a foundational now text for how to do queer studies in Victorian literature. Um, you know, I'm excited to see you're creating a new generation and I'm happy to be a part of the millennial <laughs> queer Victorian circle. That is just so incredibly kind and, and flattering and humbling uh, a thing oh. to say. Uh, uh, that, that's, that, that's lovely. Um, and uh, again, I'm glad that people are, are finding it helpful. Um, I'm, I'm happy to inspire people. I'm happy to inspire people through disagreement. Um, if people want to disagree with it, um, but I'm just happy to be, to be part of this conversation. Uh, and just thank you, uh, for giving me this opportunity today to, to talk, um, talk a bit about my, my scholarship and my life. It's been, uh, oh. a, a really wonderful opportunity. Well, thanks, Dustin. Uh, no, thank, thank you for joining. And, um, how could... You know, everyone wants to know social media handles to, you know, see what's behind the voice in this case. Um, so how can people maybe just follow you in di different ways, Dustin? Sure. Um, the best place to follow me is on Twitter, which I am on way too much for my own good. Um, but my handle on Twitter is at Dustin82. So at D-U-S-T-I-N-8-2. Uh, so you can find me there. Um, also, uh, you, I'm always happy uh, to hear from uh, emerging scholars. Established scholars too, but especially emerging scholars. Um, so they should always feel free to, to reach out to me via email. Um, and my, my academic email is uh, my first name and the first two letters of my last name. So D-U-S-T-I-N-F-R at American.edu. Wonderful. Well, and that's how I met you, Dustin, was just talking about before queer theory on Twitter. And then boom, Dustin was there. So, you know, that's, that's my behind the scenes. That's how, you know, <laughs> you all start, we all start to form a community. And that's what I love about social media. There is, I want to start doing social media literacy courses because I think there's a way to use it in academia or all professions that is really productive. Um, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. And um, it's so it's complicated to try to balance how much you use your personal voice and how much you remind yourself that you are presenting yourself professionally. Um, and everyone has to draw that line from them for themselves. But yes, I think absolutely professional use of social media, social media literacy is, is vital. Yeah, well, thank you, Dustin. I, we hope you all out there, I know there's a lot of erotic, different reverberations, conversations, so <laughs> definitely, you know, start looking into some of those texts. Okay, uh, thank you, Dustin, and bye everyone out there. Thank you so much, goodbye. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team includes me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, and Jaren Usta, our Marketing Director. I want to remind you all to please 
like, share, follow our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Please do follow us on Instagram, which is at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And if you can, please do support us, whether that be spreading the word about our podcast, word of mouth really helps. Whether it be sharing on your social media accounts, that really helps too. Please do it. And also, if you can financially support us, we appreciate it. There is a link to donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room at the bottom of the show notes. And we will make sure that we shout you out if you help financially support us. Thank you so much. You really all, by listening, are helping spread the word about the public humanities and the vision that I have here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So I really hope you all are enjoying the episodes. And message me. I really love to hear from you. You can even email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com with your excitement about the podcast. Maybe you have an interview request. Maybe you want to be interviewed. Reach out to me. I'm always interested. I'm all ears. And... I want to now conclude with our new theme song, Sagittarius, composed by Anne-Sophie Anderson. And there is a link to Anne-Sophie Anderson's promo video for Seasons, which is actually her full-length composition that includes every astrological sign as a composition. So Sagittarius is just one piece. And... Mary DePippi in her True Crime in Academia includes Scorpio. So make sure you listen to True Crime in Academia on Tuesdays to hear Scorpio and also hear Mary's exciting true crime deep dives. Okay, so here is Sagittarius, and I wish you all out there peace and happiness, and thanks again for supporting. <laughs>